I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. On this episode, as the world has turned its attention towards medical and biological innovation during the pandemic, we're examining a growing sector that's been front and center more than ever. Our subject, life sciences, and the specialized spaces where this important work takes place. The future of life sciences is an ecosystem. Investors, developers, and emerging biotech, big pharma, I think real estate is definitely at the heart of it. That's Joanne Henderson, who leads CBRE's EMEA Life Sciences Group, based in London. The capital that is flowing into our industry on the company side, the private equity VC side, looking ahead a year, you're going to see just exponential growth in the amount of capital. And that's Steve Perpura. He leads our life sciences consulting team in Boston. We are also joined by CBRE research analyst Ian Anderson in Philadelphia. This biotech revolution, the life sciences revolution, is spreading. Ian is the lead author of a new CBRE report on the life science sector, a comprehensive study that provides the framework for today's discussion. So step into our laboratory. We're talking about research and development, biomanufacturing, and more. Life sciences and real estate, that's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take, and I'm delighted to be joined by three of CBRE's leading experts in the life sciences space, each with over 20 years of experience. Well, Ian, what were some of the key takeaways in the leading life science clusters report? Sure, Spence. I'll limit it to three, although I think there's several takeaways. The first one is the remarkable resilience, even growth we've seen in the life sciences industry in 2020 against all the economic distress, retrenchment in other industries. We have more jobs in the life sciences industry in the United States in 2020 than we had one year ago. Biotech R&D jobs just reached a new record. We just collected the most amount of venture capital funding to this industry on record in June. And finally, across many markets uh, in the United States, we're seeing more demand for lab space as of mid-year than we saw in January. The second takeaway, Spence, is that this biotech revolution, the life sciences revolution, is spreading. Not only is it getting stronger, probably as strong as it's ever been in the key markets, the top tier markets of uh, Boston, Cambridge, San Francisco, Bay Area, and San Diego, but it's growing in the secondary markets, D.C. and Baltimore, Philly. But even more so, we are actually starting to see ecosystems develop in some of these very small but truly emerging markets like Pittsburgh and Houston. And the last point, the last major takeaway I'll make, Spence, is that we've identified a strong relationship between venture capital funding to this industry and subsequent employment growth, which then transmits to more commercial real estate demand. And with a record amount of venture capital funding through June, we expect employment growth and more growth in the sector over the next 12 to 18 months. Well, Steve, I would say the life sciences sector is a very specialized space. Uh, And I say specialized both from an operational and then landlord-tenant perspective. Steve, could you walk us through, just paint a picture of what a life sciences space looks like, requires, and a little bit about the landlord-tenant relationship? Sure, yeah. The life science real estate is a purpose-built building 
uh, designed and built to support a very heavy level of research. Typically, if you had an office building that you were building ground up, a life science building from a base building perspective is $75 to $100 per square foot more expensive than that office building. The majority of that is in, in the structure of the building and the system, so HVAC and power. Above and beyond that, the way the transactions are structured, uh, the landlord provides a, a higher amount of tenant improvements uh, for these transactions. And so a build-out for life science might be three to $400 a square foot of total costs. The landlords are funding $200 per square foot of it. So the tenant is still responsible for a portion of it, Spencer, but as opposed to a $100 allowance for a new office building in an urban environment, a landlord might provide, the landlord is providing 2X of that, so $200 per square foot. So all in, they're probably a couple hundred dollars a square foot uh, more uh, of an investment into the actual structure. And then the land itself is significantly more expensive than office. We're seeing land values in the core markets that are approaching $500 per buildable foot for life science space, which is record highs you know, pretty much across the board. Uh, and so the significant amount of investment is required within this sector. So let's talk about clusters for just a moment. And I'm going to go right down the line and talk about how important universities are to the growth of the life sciences sector. But let's start in Europe if we can. So Joanne, walk us through how the university systems in the UK and elsewhere are leading the charge of the growing life sciences sector. It tends to be the clusters that are developing in Europe that have a world-class reputation, such as Cambridge and Oxford, quite basically have two of the top universities in the world, right? So it's not any different from Boston and San Francisco from that perspective. And actually, you can see even now in the race for a COVID vaccine, Oxford University um, are one of the front runners, and then they come in and AstraZeneca will become their commercial partner. So I think how this all plays out, it really depends on who's coming out the university to go into incubators and what's actually happening after that. And you tend to find they're very much clustered around the university that they start with as well, which is all reinforcing that talent pool that moves on to the next stage that the private equity and VC companies are keen to get involved in. And I don't really think that's much different from the way it, it plays out in the US. We see um, 16 of the top 50 universities in the world for life sciences are in Europe and um, five of the top 20 in the world are in the UK. So it's no, it's no secret then that the UK is probably getting the lion's share of VC capital coming into the sector. It's a very linear relationship, I would say. I don't think it's a stretch to say you don't have a good life sciences cluster without a key institution or research center supporting it. Some of the top tier institutions that have driven San Francisco, Boston, and San Diego to be the top tier markets obviously are Harvard, UCSF, Stanford, UCSD. The influence of those universities or those research institutions on those markets has lessened through the years as they've achieved scale but they are more important than ever in some of the emerging markets. We wouldn't be seeing some of the spectacular growth we're seeing in Raleigh-Durham if you didn't have Duke or you didn't have UNC. You wouldn't see it in Seattle if you didn't have Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. You wouldn't see it in Pittsburgh if you didn't have Pitt or Houston with the Texas Medical Center. I think one thing that's a key uh, difference uh, with academia 
uh, and healthcare, uh, and where those two meet is that the NIH funding, for the most part, that comes from the federal government, typically goes to academia and healthcare, and so that's driven a you know a fair amount of the emergence of research in, in some of these newer markets. Uh, and I think particularly when there's a strong medical school, uh, so I think Columbia is an example, certainly UPenn, um, when there's a strong medical school in place, there's an overlap there between uh, academia and healthcare that is very compelling. And the growth that we're seeing uh, around those strong medical schools is just really starting to go, uh, but we think it's going to be a significant driver for growth of the emerging markets moving forward. Joanne, let me ask you, and this is not a loaded question because I asked the same question to my friends in data centers, cold storage, and other subsectors. Is life sciences real estate or is it something else? Life sciences is an ecosystem, right? The future of life sciences is an ecosystem. It's played out in Boston. It's played out in San Francisco. And if you're asking, is real estate a key component part of these thriving, developing ecosystems? Of course it is. It's at the centre. It's at the heart of making it happen. So for me, it's an exciting time that we can be part of almost curating some of these and helping bring together investors, developers and emerging biotech, big pharma. Real estate is definitely at the heart of it. So the answer to this is yes. <laughs> and I would just agree 100% and say that you can't have life science without real estate. Uh, you can't do research from home. You can't do research from a Starbucks. You can do research you know, on the campus of a college or university, but eventually you need to have your own space to support the research. So uh, life science, uh, you know, in real estate, uh, really can't get away from each other, and and that real estate is absolutely critical. And to Joanne's point, you know, I really look at uh, life science as it's it's real estate for sure. You need to have that purpose built space to support the research, but you also need labor, right? So you look at where pharma used to be in the U.S. So pharma used to be in New Jersey. Pfizer was in Connecticut. There was a fair amount, AstraZeneca and others, in, in Maryland, uh, Research Triangle. There's an existing labor pool there that is qualified to do the research that happens in the real estate. And those markets are growing much quicker. Philadelphia is exploding. You know, we're seeing a significant amount of growth in New York. So I'm, I'm a big believer in other markets emerging, Atlanta, uh, you know, certainly Chicago, Houston, other big major metropolitan markets. But when you look at the labor that exists in, in those markets, they're not the same sort of scientific labor that exists and is embedded in these former farmer locations. Europe's quite different, right? It's very fragmented. So even within the EU, you have 31 different markets. It's a very different marketplace uh, because you, you have the, the EMA that does drug approvals across all these different countries. Then they probably have their own local approval system and pricing and reimbursement. So it's a very complex picture. But what we've seen is um, um, it really does tend to follow where the VC capital flows and where they can get late stage financing um, it's not nearly in the same league as the US which is probably one of the biggest gaps at the moment I think the US counterparts around Boston and San Francisco compared to European biotechs they're probably five times better capitalised especially in late stage funding and that means that we still really much have a lot of pockets across Europe rather than huge centred clusters in saying that, the UK is a more mature life sciences market than um, the rest of Europe at the moment, followed by France, Germany, and you've got Belgium, Netherlands, Switzerland that are all growing at the moment. But in the UK, it's very much driven with the same dynamic of Oxford University, Cambridge University, three of the London universities, all top 20 in the world in terms of life sciences and biomedical sciences. The talent is here. The scientific research is here. 
here. The biggest difference still is the late stage funding. And that's probably why we've not seen it take off just in the same way that you have in the US. I think the thing we need to underscore too is that we're still in a relatively early stage of all these technologies still being developed, perfected. And so, you know, all these need to occur where the smartest people are in the industry. And a lot of that then goes where a lot of the NIH funding goes. So this is why this is all clustering still at this point. Well, Steve, you and I were talking yesterday about a new subsector within the uh, life sciences space uh, about uh, biomanufacturing and how I would say immature that sector is, but how it's exploding today. Why don't you talk about that one subsector and how that might be creating yet another opportunity within life sciences. The companies that actually have approved gene therapeutics, uh, you know, early this year was less than 10. So there's sort of less than 10 of these companies that have shifted into an actual manufacturing stage of their therapies. And so uh, we've seen a significant uptick in demand for this new type of space. It's all new and it's so important. And so we're gonna see and have seen that, um, that demand for biomanufacturing space in core locations. So it isn't like ship it off you know, into uh, you know, a greenfield somewhere in the middle of the country. It's we need to be close to uh, where the research is happening in California and Boston and beyond. So, you know, that is actually in a big way what uh, Durham has been historically, Research Triangle. Uh, but we're seeing it in a big way in Philadelphia. We're seeing it, you know, starting to happen in New Jersey. And we're starting to see it a bit in Europe as well. So it's, a, it's the kind of the next shoe to drop on the real estate side of life science. Well, I think for the benefit of our listeners, I just want to make a distinction. While we're talking about biomanufacturing uh, of a certain type, we're not talking about generic drug manufacturing, which is still typically done in China, in Israel, in other locations where it's cheaper and can be done in mass, though there is a talk about some of that coming back to the United States too, uh, or to Europe for more resilience. But that is a different segment of the market completely. Would you agree, Steve? 100%. Yeah. And, and you know, the sourcing of the compounds for those drugs is typically have been, you know, in, in, in Asia. And, and there's just questioning all of that. And we certainly expect to see um, you know, some demand for that type of space. I don't think that's going to be in the Boston's of the world, uh, but that very well might be in the, you know, the U.S., right? And that could be a Texas thing and, and um, you know, in some of these other locations. So I'm surprised it's taken us 15 minutes to ask this question, but we have to go right to the COVID-19 question. And Ian, in the report that you just wrote, you talked about how the sector, um, notwithstanding the, the terrible troubles we have nationally, globally because of COVID-19, is actually doing better today than it was pre-COVID. How much has COVID changed the sector uh, for better or maybe for worse? Well, I think there's two things particularly related to commercial real estate about this. The first thing is there is going to be a shift towards onshoring of some of these facilities, bringing back some of the production uh, to the states or domestically because of this, just simply because of the importance Uh, of an issue that we're dealing with right now and the reliance of some of these companies on uh, international sources of their products. So we're going to see some of this onshoring that's going to occur in the coming years just because some of these companies have been exposed for some of their weaknesses and their supply chains. That's the first thing. The second thing that I think is probably more compelling and I think it's reflective of some of the greater interests we've seen from investors or venture capitalists or what have you, is the fact that I think we may be undergoing a sea change in sentiment for the industry. So for such a long time, it's been, we've had this, we've, we've had this stigma of big pharma, of price gouging, et cetera. And all of a sudden, I think, is that COVID-19 
has shifted that sentiment. And so, and so it's not the stigma anymore, but in a way, now the life sciences industry in a way is the savior. And so uh, I think we're going to see much more uh, cooperation, much more positive or favorable sentiment from government policymakers. And then perhaps more lucratively, we're going to see more funding diverted to the industry. I also think it's an opportunity and the capital identifies that uh, the vaccine, the vaccine uh, in the plasma treatment that they've come up with in nine months, uh, you know, I think the previous quickest uh, vaccination was four years, uh, you know, and so now they're going to have one in less than a year, you know, for COVID-19. And, and I think the investment community has recognized these platforms that are doing research have an incredible ability to uh, come up with new treatments for all of the different things that affect uh, mankind. And the opportunity in that economically is pretty significant as well. So just to emphasize Ian's point, the capital that is flowing into our industry on the, on the company side, the private equity VC side, what we're tracking now is what was sort of committed to six months ago. Looking ahead a year, you're going to see just exponential growth in the amount of capital. And the vacancy rates for existing lab space are, in, in my opinion, essentially zero in the core markets or very close to it. I would even argue negative vacancy. So what you're going to see is this dynamic between supply and demand over the next 12 to 18 months is completely out of whack because as a company gets funding to do research, they want to be in the lab space tomorrow. And some of these projects that we're working on are three years away from delivering and it creates this stressful situation. Yeah, the only thing I'm going to just mention, Spence, that I think is a little more you know, anecdotal, but just imagine, think of the media attention that's been brought to life sciences. Imagine all either that's head fund managers, private equity, all of a sudden knowing about the opportunities in life sciences, biotechnology, and, and, and it just emphasizes that, you know what, we really do need to get into that space. One more thing I'd like to say, Spence, which you'll appreciate is the backdrop of COVID-19 is work from home for all of our office product as well, too. So you've got this total disconnect between the purpose-built space, the scientists have been in, you know, back to work since really sort of April 1st. It was like a two-week hiatus there. And then everyone else is working from home. And so this idea of the underlying fundamentals of our office market, you know, are in uncharted territory. So every developer, every capital source, every broker uh, is trying to get into life science. Steve, you touched on an issue now, and I'll turn to Ian on this one, which is the adaptive reuse. There is some adaptive reuse potential out there, not just in short squatty, as you've used the term, office, but industrial and even retail. Would you agree, Ian? Would I agree? Uh, yes, of course. I mean, I think we're facing supply constraints. Demand is outpacing supply. So the market just has to shift to uh, some of these conversions. You know, as for a shopping center or an industrial property to convert, I suppose it's possible. But I think the one thing we have to remember, too, is you want to maintain that cluster. You don't want to be an island. So is it possible that you could put a lab uh, in, in World Trade, three World Trade Center or something? I mean, I, I suppose it's possible. But do you really want to be an island? You want to be the one biotech firm in downtown Manhattan. You want to be close to some of your peers. You want to be in some type of cluster. And I would just add, you know, industrial is a great, I mean, industrial works phenomenally well, but industrial is, you know, the second hottest segment too, right? So there's not a lot of industrial that's sitting around near core locations that wants to be converted. It wants to be industrial at record rents. Uh, retail is interesting in our market. And, uh, you know, so I think we are looking at retail. There's a few redevelopments that make sense. You know, think, you know, the three-story urban mall more than the strip center. Um, you just can't get as much scale to a strip center. But if you have a three-story urban mall, what do you have? You have ceiling heights, um, you have good loading, um, you have good floor loads, and you have access to the roof, right? And so it's a short, squatty, 
building and it works really well. Uh, and so we're starting to see that. And I think that that trend will absolutely continue as retail redefines itself. Well, I think even in that shopping center space, which I would agree it's limited by its square footage, there are some troubled retailers like movie theaters, like gyms that have higher ceilings that might be easier to adapt than perhaps a, um, a different type of store. I mean, think suburban uh, four-story office building. That's a lot easier to do. That, that's going to happen. Suburban four-story office building all day long, Philadelphia, Boston, and beyond, uh, New York, uh, anything like that. It's the urban office tower that's just too hard, I think, to, you know, to really convert it any sort of scale. And so, you know, I, I definitely um, am as bullish as I've ever been, uh, you know, on the suburbs. It's actually playing out the same, um, certainly in the UK, that there's, um, there's, there's quite a lot of interest in looking at repurposing um, suburban office buildings as well. Uh, many of them, as you say, Steve, they lend themselves well to, um, to converting to life sciences space because we have a supply demand issue as well. And um, it's not on the same scale, but certainly um, the, the trend is moving in the same direction as well. And that's, that's what some of the um, our investors developer clients are thinking about doing at the moment as well. Well, Joanne, let's stay with you and let's talk about another issue that Steve brought up, which is pricing. Can you talk about the the value, the price from a capital markets perspective of some of these life sciences projects, maybe compared to industrial or office uh, in the same markets? Honestly, Spencer, I'm not sure we've done enough of them yet. Um, honestly, I know it sounds very strange compared to the US, but um, you know, there's been there's been some really quite interesting um, projects that have happened across the capital markets. But we're really just starting to see this move now in Europe. It's, we don't have the same scale of um, of examples that you have um, in the US. And one of the questions I'm asked quite a lot is looking at all the uh, the investment parameters and looking at the yields and the returns on life cycle and rental, and we just don't have the information at the moment in the same way that you do in the U.S. Well, I think that's the bad news and the good news. The bad news is you have no comps or you have a few comps. The good news is as an immature sector, it represents opportunity. Well, Spencer, it's I talk about this as there's still space for first mover advantage for sure, and and actually, you know, the you think about some of the experiences that um, companies have built in the U.S. and they're actually really well placed to come over to Europe, um, to actually take the learnings and kind of understand a bit more about the dynamics and bring that kind of almost that experience that many of the European investors just do not have in the sector. So I still say, you know, there's that first mover advantage opportunity because we've not been doing speculative lab build in the UK. We've not been building flex labs or anything like that yet or across Europe and um, because there is that that nervousness of taking that risk and worrying about the demand and the returns. So, so for someone who's brave enough to really embrace that and to move forward on it, I think the opportunity is massive. Just to jump on Joanne's point, uh, you know, I, I, I do think that uh, the, the investors and developers that have been most rewarded are the ones that have moved forward on a speculative basis. Uh, and along those lines, you know, and what I would classify as a landlord uh, friendly market in life science, what we're seeing is concessions going up, which is actually interesting. I mean, rents are going up as well, but we're seeing more turnkey build outs. And so there's an idea of building spec on, you know, a building with a shell. And there's an idea of actually building out these flex lab spaces. And more and more, we're seeing uh, landlords that are delivering those and getting a premium for them from a timing perspective because the companies want to be in space, you know, as quickly as possible. And so they'll make a pretty big sacrifice on 
other traditional drivers like location if they can get into space six or 12 months earlier. Uh, from a value perspective, um, you know, Boston, San Francisco, uh, very, very mature. Uh, land values are, you know, running pretty hard, two to 600 bucks a buildable foot. Um, you know, you compare that to what they'd be worth for office. Um, I'm not sure they would trade, you know, his office right now, you know, just given the dynamics. So there's, you can't even compare the two. And you think about where life science has gone, as Ian mentioned, in the last nine months, really has accelerated the growth uh, of that market. And, and then we think about what the office market has done in the last nine months. The divergence there is incredible. Um, and, and, you know, the values are completely different. And, you know, cap rates for life science space, given the amount of capital that wants to get into life science, you know, the big, large pension funds that want allocations towards life science has, has compressed the cap rates. It's a little deceiving of a statistic because we're, our rents are so uh, above where they are. You know, the in-place rents are lower. So obviously your cap rates are lower because you're marking to market whenever those leases roll. Uh, but we're, we're consistently see cap rates that, you know, could potentially be even into the fours and low fours on some of the product that, that we're seeing. And you compare that to you tell me on office, but, you know, I can't imagine that there's much office that would trade anywhere close to that from a cap rate perspective. Well, I will tell you where we are in industrial because CBRE just came out with our cap rate survey two weeks ago, and we are seeing record low cap rates in industrial. And believe it or not, even in the office segment, we are seeing better stability in cap rates than the market might suggest, particularly for long-term credit tenant leases. But as a capital markets guy, operational real estate always made me nervous. So Ian, let me ask you the, the devil's advocate question. Is this a sector we should be recommending to investors or should they be wary of it given the operational aspects? Ian. I think uh, we would be, we need to recommend our clients not to go blindly into this. So I think you need to have some type of expertise or guidance about your underwriting, uh, about the operations to it, because there, as we've mentioned, there's a lot of people chasing after this and there's going to be people who are going to make mistakes. So I think our clients, I think these investors need the expertise before they, they make a deep dive into this. There is no shortage of capital. Um, I, I can talk to investors um, and new investors even six, seven times a week at the moment who have plenty of capital. But, you know, the ones to Ian's point as well about being cautious, I think many realise that they need to be on board with a, a strong, experienced operator for this to work for them. Um, but there's even fewer of those. So so we have this situation at the moment that's very exciting that there's so much capital to spend spend, but knowing where to deploy it and the actual opportunities they're looking for that would work with an operator in the right kind of uh, um, platform play that many are looking for, they are just very, very rare at the moment, which means when they do come up, there's a huge number of interested parties and um, you know they are tending to pay a premium for them as well. Joanne, I don't know what you're seeing, but I think that, and I think it's a good sign for the stability of the market too, is despite the abundance of capital, despite the amount of people People that want to get into this space, I'd say for the most part, we're not seeing a flood of uh, dumb money, if you will, getting into it. For the most part, those that have ventured into it who haven't been in traditionally have taken the expertise or guidance from the professionals. So this is a good point to have a wrap-up question. And like data centers, like cold storage, times have never been better for the life sciences sector today. What does the life sciences sector look like five years 10 years from now, it's about 100 million square feet right now in the top markets, starting with you. Five or 10 years from now, how big is the sector? Ian. 
I can't give you an exact figure on the a absolute inventory, but Spence, this is this is a secular uh, this is a secular growth industry. Uh, it's going to spread into different industries. We're talking about just editing jeans now. It's going to make its way into fashion. It's going to make it its way into product packaging. So um, this is just going to continue to be ongoing and a greater engine of growth for our economy. Steve, where do you think it's going to be? I think the total inventory is going to double in size um, pretty definitively. Um, whether that's in seven years or 12 years, I don't know. Um, you know, purpose-built space that supports this element of research is going to be required for many companies that aren't just doing life science, you know, to Ian's point. So, you know, the, the big tech companies, um, they're going to need purpose-built, you know, research space, right? So significant growth. Follow the labor. I always say that. Real estate's about supporting the labor pools. So when you think about where the labor pools are going to be, uh, and want to be, you know, in 10 years, that's where this is going to happen. So, you know, obviously target the major cities, um, you know, in the Midwest, it's not going to be just a coastal phenomenon. You know, so when you think about Chicago, Madison, Wisconsin, St. Louis, there's going to be, you know, I don't know if it's 2 million feet or 5 million feet, but there's going to be millions of square feet of research space in those major cities where the, where the kids who graduate at 22 want to, want to be, um, because that's the labor pool that, um, you know, want to tap into. And I think the last thing I'll say about that is, all of the universities are on this now. I've got two kids in high school and uh, one of them wants to be an engineer and I'm pushing him. Um, you know, he wants to be a mechanical engineer and I'm sort of scratching my head. I'm thinking, I don't know about medical device, but I know that if you're, <laughs> if you're doing more on the chemistry side, you might, you might be pretty well positioned for, you know, for a future uh, employment. So follow the labor like everything else. If you look where the tech markets that have emerged over the last five, 10 years, the big cities, that's where it's going to be. I'll echo Steve's comments. You know, the industry has gone from strength to strength. You know, what I see happening is where people are and what they're connected into and what ecosystems um, they're linked to is going to change. You're still going to have the powerhouses of Boston and San Francisco. That's never going to change. And, and that's fueled by the strength of the universities there and the heritage and the talent. But I think what we're going to start seeing as we get more private and public funding in a post-COVID world going into some of these hubs in London, Cambridge, Oxford, just to strengthen them, looking at Germany, France, Switzerland, Netherlands, um, Belgium, even when we look at some of the Spanish markets in Barcelona and Madrid, as the governments there also decide, hey, we want to focus on life sciences as well. We'll start to see more of the funding going into the universities. We'll start to see more private funding come in as well. And what I'd like to see is the whole size of the industry grows. It's it's not just about the pockets and the clusters that we know today, but as we see more investment in the sector, more kids being interested in being part of the sector because they're in the post-COVID wave of looking at the resilience of the industry. And that's all self-propelling. And I, I think it can only be very, very positive. So I see I see it growing quite significantly in Europe, um, maybe not so much as the US in the next few years, but I think you give it five to 10 years and you'll start to see some real powerhouse clusters across the European cities as well. Speaking of predictions, uh, I don't think anybody can predict uh, what the next year is going to look like other than the fact that the life sciences sector is essential to making next year better than any other sector in the world economy. So on behalf of our real estate brethren, but a lot of other people, thank you for what you do because you have never been more important, not just from a real estate perspective, but for the overall health and safety of everybody around the world. So thank you uh, on behalf of everybody for what you do. Uh, but Ian Anderson, let me first thank you for being here and the terrific report that you wrote 
Leading Life Sciences Clusters on CBRE.com. Terrific report. Thanks, guys. Steve Perpura, thank you very much for joining us from Boston, Cambridge. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Joanne, thank you so much for joining us from London and being the EMEA head of Life Sciences. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks very much. To find a copy of CBRE's excellent new report, Leading Life Sciences Clusters, or any other reports we mentioned, we'll post links at cbre.com slash the weekly take. You can also find more information on our show. And if you found us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another platform, we'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. We're grateful for your feedback. Once again, thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.